I think that there's also a whole big conversation to have around what does it mean to live in a world where there's this much autism that's diagnosed. It really forces us to change what we think about as being autism and disability and um, how we design a neurotypical world um, and what kind of supports they need to be successful. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Barasin. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. We're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And today we're going to talk about going to college. So May 1st was the U.S. was the National College Decision Day. And so if you have a young person in your life, they had to make a commitment by now as to where they're going to go in the fall. And this can be an incredibly stressful time for some kids, an incredibly exciting time. But needless to say, it's fraught with lots of emotion. And I must say, before we, before we start about the kids, I just want to acknowledge to all the parents who are listening that um, while it's an exciting time for you, it's also extraordinarily anxious and invariably it's a loss because your kids are like not at home. But we can we can do that on another podcast. Today we're going to focus <laughs> on today, today we'll today we'll focus. I do get I do get a little uh, waylaid sometimes, but because um, I've sent four kids to college and I keep feeling the losses. Um, uh, but today we're going to talk about making this transition, but we're going to take a slightly different focus. We're not just going to talk about all kids. We're going to talk about certain young people with autism, autism spectrum disorder and making a sex, successful transition. And we have a special guest, Dr. Chris Keery, who's joining the conversation. Dr. Keery is a child and adolescent and adult psychiatrist who specializes in care for individuals with developmental disabilities, including autistic spectrum disorder, or what we'll call ASD. And among the other roles he plays, he's a psychiatrist at the Lurie Center, for autism. He's assistant program director for the multidisciplinary kit clinic for children, adolescents, and adults with autistic spectrum disorder. In addition to his clinical work, Dr. Kiri teaches medical students, residents, and fellows at Harvard Medical School, and has been involved in developing guidelines for the evaluation and treatment of mental illness in autism spectrum disorder. So Chris, did I get that right? Gene, that sounds great. I, uh, I'm really pleased to be here today. Uh, Gene and Khadija, thank you both so much for having me. Well, and by the way, uh, Chris began a fellowship. In, 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 yeah. in, is, is, it it just, is it just in ASD or is it in all yeah. different forms of development? Just in ASD. It's one of the first out there when we first started it of um, providing extra training for uh, psychiatrists, child and adolescent psychiatrists who want to uh, further uh, improve the quality of the, their treatment for the, the patients that have autism, kids, teens, and adults that have autism. So uh, that's been a really gratifying thing. So first, can you remind us all of what autistic spectrum disorder is? As a diagnosis says, it's on a spectrum, but, but what does that mean? And what does it look like, especially with our older kids who are going off to college? I think about autism spectrum disorder as being a of a, a behavioral profile, constellation of different behaviors that can come together, uh, characterized largely by challenges in social functioning or differences in social functioning around uh, using reciprocity within relationships or picking up on 
using nonverbal communication, these important aspects of communication, which are not verbal, recognizing it in others and, and using it themselves. In addition to some of these uh, social differences in functioning, there are these other uh, grab bag of different behavioral features that can kind of come along with it, a need for, for a preference for sameness in uh, routine, uh, strong interests, you know, which can be kind of a double-edged sort of situation. Strong interests can also lead to deep expertise, but it can also lead to challenges and distractions from more practical concerns. Uh, some sensory sensitivities or hyposensitivities, and then for some individuals, ritualized or repetitive behaviors. But it it's like you said, Gene, it's there's a spectrum, right, of of severity. Um, and there's been huge changes over the past 20 years, 10, 20 years, and what we understand of as being autism spectrum disorder from uh, to include much more people who don't have intellectual disability as part of their autism, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, people who have autism and who could err more than equal intellectually to what college has to throw at them, but struggle in other ways to uh, do well in college and, uh, and thinking about how to support them. So, so let's just get right into it, because college and transitioning to college is huge for, for, for most kids and families, and it's particularly or can be particularly challenging for kids with ASD. And so as parents, how do we know how to best support them? You know, how involved do we get? There's so much to coordinate, you know, with respect to academic accommodations, their personal needs, roommate situations. How do we help them navigate mm. that? We talked about yeah. some of the interpersonal things that challenges that might get in the way. Um, their mental health services, do we just leave it all to them to, to negotiate and coordinate or do, do we kind of jump in? There's a lot to think about, I think. It, understanding where people are going to need supports, it should be a really individualized kind of question uh, because there is such a range in terms of the challenges that people with autism spectrum disorder uh, may struggle with from major challenges and major supports to people who don't need a whole lot of supports maybe just need some understanding. Um, I think it's across the range, but it should start with a sober-eyed, let's get real kind of moment of what supports you're currently putting in place for uh, somebody with, with autism spectrum disorder. I mean, we may use the, the older term for it, Asperger's here as well. Um, and what kind of supports is the school currently providing? What kind of supports are parents themselves providing, maybe without even realizing that they're providing because they're so used to providing these supports? Um, and what kind of supports exist outside of the school? And I think about three particular domains to kind of think about to like have that assessment around. Um, one domain is academic, how people are functioning academically, how much support they're getting. These might be all the accommodations that are currently being provided in school tutors, things like that, um, what sort of supports are on the IEP or the individualized educational plan. So that's all what we might put of, think about as academics. Then we've got social functioning. Um, that's another important domain to think about. How much support does someone need in making friends? How much support does someone need in interacting with professors, teachers, peers, in discussion groups? How do they do socially? How would we anticipate them to do socially with a roommate? Thinking about that sort of domain as well is important sort of domain number two. And the third domain I think about as being sort of self-care skills, um, how people are going to do with living away from home around things like um, taking care of themselves with their room, laundry, the sort of self-care skills, 
you know, how much is, is somebody following up on that? If they have medical issues, are they taking their medicines? You know, how much are they attending to? Um, I had one uh, kid I worked with called it adulting, which I thought was like perfect. Like this, the skills of adulthood, adulting. You know, the reality is most people in their early 20s are still working at adulting. Um, some of us may still be in our 40s working on it, but um, everybody's different. And for some people with autism, they can be extremely bright, knock it out of the park with school. But when it comes to adulting, need some areas of support. So so a kind of a, a sober-eyed assessment in those three areas, starting around 15 or 16 years old, um, can give you a good sense of where people are likely to need support. So do we as a parent help them to uh, to 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 get these supports in place, either through the school or community, or we ourselves as parents decide to continue? Do we let them tell us what they need or what they want? Like, how do we go about making sure they have what they need in place without being yeah. overbearing and allowing them to adult a little bit um, yeah. as much as they can? Yeah, well, I, I love how you're starting this conversation of how um how much parents need to lean in versus how much they start to, to take a step back because for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into here, um, uh, transitional age, we'll use the term kids, but really we're talking about adults here, transitional age adults um, need to start to take on um, the uh, being the heads of their uh, accommodations and supports when it comes to school and starting to self-monitor with how they do with those things. And so there's got to be a sort of a change in philosophy over the uh, two, three years leading up to college of starting to give um, transitional age adults and teenagers uh, some chance rooms to make mistakes, some rooms to start to step into that responsibility to see how they do, how they rise to the occasion. And that gives um, I think parents some guidance around how much they need to lean in. Because of course, once we get to college, we're in a whole different world where the expectation is that transitional age adults, the, the individual with autism is advocating, starting to advocate for themselves and seek out these supports on their own. In fact, it's such an important step to take that I'll encourage the families I work with to make that a goal on the IEP, make that a goal in terms of sort of self-advocacy or um, starting to speak up for themselves in terms of what accommodations help and which don't. Um, and, and have that be, that taking on increased voice for yourself being a separate goal to work for in the IEP. Um, well, just following up on that, Chris, you know, um, in some ways it's easier for parents because their uh, kids are, are at home. Many colleges, as you know, once a kid has turned 18, parents are, and I don't, I don't agree with this, but they, they, they're not allowed to get involved. Mm. They, they don't, they're not allowed to be involved with their academics. They're not allowed to do any coaching. They're not allowed to kind of, you know, they don't get their grades. Uh, and, and so, and so what, you know, I think the times may be shifting a little bit, but in many schools, parents are persona non grata. I mean, they, they're, they're not, it's not as though the schools are, ex, you know, being nasty to them. They're just saying, when you're over 18, you're an adult and we want to value autonomy and yeah. independence, which is certainly fine. But 
how do parents find out what they are going to be allowed to or not be allowed to do and maybe set up a structure or help set up a structure at school so that the kids, because I can't imagine an Asperger's kid advocating for him or herself themselves. It really, it really depends on the person, but I think you're right that this is a, this is an area of challenge for a lot of people um, with uh, autism spectrum disorder, Asperger's diagnosis. It's, it's, you know, all of a sudden you're the one um, fighting for these kind of supports. And in a world that's very different from the high school world, where there is all of this um, uh, accountability around ensuring that kids are meeting the goals of an IEP, where the college world is much more oriented around, okay, we're going to provide accommodations that allow you to access college, but there's much less of a, um, we're expecting success kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, how can parents um, remain involved is a really good question here that you both are bringing up. And I think a lot of that is around developing a good collaborative uh, system, a good collaborative um, alliance with the, the kid and transitional age adult uh, with, with autism, with that, um, Asperger's syndrome, that we're going to have a good system where we kind of check up on how we're doing with this and we're going to collaborate together. Um, and how well kids or teenagers or transitionally as adults collaborate with their parents on these issues start to become a really important factor on how well people do going into college. I think on that same vein, a lot of our kids come from, you know, they might come from general high schools, but a lot of them also come from very specialized private schools where they have a ton of, of accommodations and supports. And so transitioning to colleges can be really challenging in terms of, to your point, Gene, with parents not really being included. And so how do you help them monitor and become aware of what's working and what's not? But also, how do you know what you're looking for in terms of what a school has to offer that might, to some degree, match what they were have, what they had before that allowed them to be successful? Knowing that it's not going to be exact, but, you know, we don't want to go from full service, all hands on deck to good luck, you know, with, with this college experiment. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, we're one of the themes that's we're starting to talk about here is um, assessing where individuals are going to need help and starting that process. Ideally, in a perfect world, you're starting that process around 15, 16. You're talking about that in the IEP meetings of, you know, we want to make self-advocacy a goal. We're thinking about preparing for college here. We want college readiness to be on the goal. Um, and parents can request a transitional assessment um, as part of their IEP. And I encourage families to do that starting around the age of 14, 15, 16, um, to help provide an assessment from the high school standpoint, what kind of skills someone needs. And there also, you can ask, you can get transitional assessments outside of high school. There are sort of like private organizations that are sort of college readiness um, organizations where they will do their own sort of transitional assessment, you know, and what kind of challenges in those three domains I told you about, um, you know, what are some areas. Um, so asking for these transitional assessments so that we're all on the same page with knowing where people are going to need help, um, you know, early on, 15, 16, 70 is real, 17 is really key and making uh, self-advocacy a goal. Um, and then being aware of there are a variety of different areas where the person can get support. There's areas of support that come from the college itself. There are areas of support that come from 
sort of private pay organizations. And then there are areas of support that can come from services that are paid for by the Department of Developmental Services, DDS. If I get the sense that someone is likely going to need a lot of supports to be successful in college, I'll often try to try to advocate for a, a young adult to um, uh, connect with the Department of Developmental Services because they'll pay for a lot of the supports that we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Um, but let's start with talking a little bit about some of the supports that the college can provide. Now, all colleges will have a sort of a disabilities resource center. The other name for that may be um, uh, school support office, whatever the name for the school is. Meeting with them beforehand as part of the college sort of visit, um, if you're interested in that school and really serious about that school, is a really key and helpful thing because colleges differ in terms of what kind of supports they're willing to provide. So a meeting with the College Disabilities Support Center to say, um, look, you know, um, we're getting these kind of supports in high school. The extra time for tests has been great. The note taker has been great. Is there anything along those lines that is, is provided at your school? That conversation can open a lot in terms of knowing whether this is a good college fit. But that can be a really key part of the college visit. You know, you're going to, you're going to visit the school, you're going to take a look at it. Let's also schedule a meeting with the school disability office. Um, we might be interested in whether the, what the school's mental health resources are. Do they have therapists that are present on campus? And do they have students who are seeing the therapists on a weekly basis? Um, we might be also curious about sort of special interest groups at the school, like getting socially isolated can be a really common situation. So do they have clubs, um, activities, groups that are in the particular person's area of interest? You know, if they love Pokemon, a Pokemon club or things like that, those things can really make a big difference in not getting socially isolated. And then when I think about the, the services that Department of Developmental Services provides or will pay for, there's a service out there called a College Navigator. The College Navigator is kind of like a fixer for challenges functioning in college. So they might help academically with like meeting and planning out your schedule, your study schedule. They might help with liaisoning between the individual with autism and professors who might be kind of rigid in and of themselves. They may, they can be sort of um, someone in your corner for a lot of people with autism as they're going off to college. And um, there's uh, individual coaches can also be something paid for by Department of Developmental Services. Um, and that can be another major support to think about. Um, and then I think about services that are outside DDS, outside of the school. This might be a child's individual therapist or psychiatrist that they meet with. Parents might pursue coaches outside of the school by you know, paying for that privately. There are these transitional programs that can be kind of expensive where um, you're uh, sort of signing up for a particular um, set of uh, series of coaching that might even continue to work with a child in their first year of college. Um, so that's going to be a really helpful support as well. I hope I haven't talked talk to you off on this particular subject, but those are some like resources that can be really helpful and kind of domains to think about. But it all starts with a transitional assessment as a teenager. Which is really, I, you know, we all think that the schools or so many of us think that the school's ability to provide stops when they in, in high school. So I think it will be really helpful for for parents to know that there are other resources because what is also 
um, yep. challenging or barrier is the cost to some of these things and getting your right. kids what they need. Right. Absolutely. And that's where I often think about, you know, it's a small percentage of my patients that are able to pay for like a transitional program where you're staying overnight and you're learning to do laundry and live with a roommate and, and, um, you know, those, those can be really expensive processes, but working with a coach who you're meeting with on a once a week basis, and then having a college navigator, those might be services paid for by the department of developmental services. Um, in Massachusetts, there's an organization called Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission, MRC, which actually works with kids. People don't realize that it works with, they work with teenagers and they work with transitional age adults. And they also do coaching or think about people's readiness for college. So these are all resources that don't, you know, that could be paid for by, uh, you know, other sources and help decrease the cost related to these things. So these aren't all, you know, you have to be independently wealthy to get these supports. Let me, let me just clarify a few, uh, legal issues or or I should say, you know, issues that parents can rely on. So in you mentioned IEP a few times. That's individual educational plan. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's and that and that is under the Individual Disabilities Education Act, which federally mandates that public schools provide accommodations for academic, social, behavioral needs of kids. Does the DDS have the equivalent of a mandate for colleges or college age students is this federally mandated so if the so if the school says oh we don't do that then the parents can say well wait a second just like they say in high schools and they have to advocate for their kid what's mandated federally so that the parents can actually rely on that yeah it's much it's much less specific gene just like you're saying so the 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 laws that protect um and support uh, kids with a disability of some kind, you're right, under IDEA. And the legal backing that supports um, young adults in going off to college is based on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And there's a much more broad legal standard that orients around really just um, there needs to be supports that allows people to access college. It's not about success. It's about access. So we think about the IEP, you know, you set goals and we're going to make the goals specific. Here's what we're going for. And our expectation is success. And if it's not working, we're going to change it. That's different in college. In college, it's about access, being able to access um, the curriculum. It's not necessarily about success. So as you can see, there's less of a legal grounding to be based on, but you bring it back to these are accommodations that are required in order to be able to access college and you're on more secure uh, footing. Um, college, you know, with an IEP, you can make modifications to the curriculum in order to be successful. You don't have legal basing for modifications in the curriculum of a college course. You know what I mean? It's going to be the same expectations for all students. You know, we're going to provide accommodations to allow students to access it. We can't change the curriculum itself. But one exception to this is Massachusetts is one of the first in the nation to have um, funding put aside to have colleges develop a program for people with intellectual disability to go to college. Um, this is These are new laws that have come out. And for those kids or transitional age adult that are under that uh, particular, those particular rules, the Massachusetts Initiative of Concurrent Enrollment, um, and, and sorry, Massachusetts Inclusion, Inclusive Concurrent Enrollment Initiative, um, kids with intellectual disability can participate in some college. They're essentially still under their IEP. But for kids who don't have an intellectual disability diagnosis, it really comes down to 
um, accommodations to allow people to access. And so for many um, kids I work with who, or young adults I work with with autism, they may have some accommodations around um, extended times for tests, or they might have some accommodations of people helping with notes. Um, but a lot of it is incumbent upon them to attend the professor's college, um, professor's open office hours, um, and um, recognize if they're falling behind, notice if that's happening, and seek out help. Again, this gets back to self-advocacy. And so um, it's really, we kind of mentioned this before, it's really important for transitional age youth to have a good working connection with their parents um, to identify when things are falling behind. Another person to recognize if someone is falling behind would be um, like a, a once a week or once every two weeks meeting with the school disability um, office to look at planning out of academics and going over how someone is doing because you wanna catch that student before they get so far behind that now they're not attending class anymore because it's like a snowball that's like going down the hill and you can't stop it anymore. So you wanna catch it early. So putting sort of in place people that the student is gonna connect with on a once a week or once every two week basis to see how they're doing catches it before the snowball gets too big. Do, do, does the DDS provide um, legal advocacy? I mean, so sometimes, I mean, e even in high schools that are mandated under the Individual for Disabilities Education Act, it, it, it sometimes turns into an, an argument or at worst a battle to get services. Um, and although we don't want to see adversarial things happening, sometimes a disabilities attorney or a legal advocate can be a great ally. What's the availability of that for parents that just don't really know or understand the system? I I think a, a resource I'll oftentimes direct families to will be the Autism Resource Center. Um, this is a Massachusetts-specific uh, support, so I'm not sure other states might have equivalent sort of organization that helps connect uh, parents with um, learning more about what can be covered and not covered, and they will they may uh, provide parents information about um, educational advocates. Um, and as I understand it, there may be some um, supports out there to help families where there's a financial concern around that. So it's a wonderful resource that exists in Massachusetts, the Autism Resource Center, um, and can be a good place to uh, to consider. Um, and uh, it, you're right, it, it can get adversarial. It, and, it, and it's challenging because the college will treat the students as being the director of all of their supports and services. So in a population that can be taken advantage of more easily, that can be more socially naive, we wanna make sure that they're backed up enough. So I really like to think about starting college with routine check-ins with, with, uh, with other people, um, with family, with the therapist, with maybe an outside coach or tutor to recognize, uh-oh, things are going south. Let's get the cavalry together here sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's so important for so many kids going to college to be able to have that open lines of communication so that you do catch things before the bottom falls out. And we also are still dealing with so much stigma. Is there, do you, do you, do you ever have concerns about patients disclosing that they have ASD? Like we're talking about how do we get accommodations and things put in place for them, but do you ever, um, come against challenges with patients either wanting to disclose or not wanting to disclose? that they might have uh, ASD to their school, the teachers, their peers, 
how do you help them navigate it? Because even, you know, clinically, I often find myself having to talk about it as a constellation of symptoms or better how you put it, a constellation of features so that families can understand why the label exists so that we kind of can use similar language and kind of have an idea of what we're speaking about. But how do we help them navigate disclosure? Yeah, there are a lot of different uh, aspects to disclosure, who to disclose to, disclosing to school administration versus individual teachers versus peers and friends at school. Um, as part of your transitional assessment, ideally families get a sense of what kind of supports may be needed academically, socially. And if there's a sense of there being significant supports, it's important to remember that in order to, to get that support, sort of get a more understanding approach from school, disclosure is kind of a key step in that. You know, in order to be protected under American Disabilities Act to try and advocate for some of these accommodations, it, there needs to be a disclosure step of letting people know that you know, we're going to call this a disability, that a disability exists. So if there are, I certainly have some patients who are doing so well in high school without a lot of supports, and then it's a more open question, really, there may not be that many supports needed in college, maybe we do or don't need to disclose, but if we are going to be trying to push the school to get some additional accommodations, some supports to try and be understanding if there's a social um, conflict with a professor or a peer in school, then disclosure is a part of that. Um, a key aspect of um, talking about disclosure is also um, making sure that we've been really open with and worked with people with autism themselves to talk about the diagnosis. I sometimes see people where the parents have been reluctant perhaps in talking about the diagnosis too much because they're afraid that they're afraid of stigmatizing their loved one or that, you know, if we use too much of a label, people are going to worry that we don't see all their positive qualities, for instance. And having a, a, a conversation about autism and it not, you know, that they're, you know, this is not all um, negative and pathology that involves seeing the world in a different way, that people with autism have a lot of things to contribute in terms of being successful and, and how different perspectives can, can uh, be a thing of value. I think it's an important decision to have to help um, have an open conversation about autism spectrum disorder diagnosis with somebody who has autism diagnosis, and then be able to get into some of the details around the areas that may be a challenge for you socially, being reciprocal in relationships, or some of the challenges that may be around anxiety or some of the challenges around needing some academic supports because we want there to be insight that's built over time um, for the person with autism themselves to say, oh yeah, you know, I'm working on organization. You know, if it comes to this particular subject, I can knock it out of the park, but I fall behind in academics because of organization. That's something I'm working on. And so that's a key step along disclosure. We're disclosing not just the diagnosis, we're disclosing, and I need help when it comes to organization, or, and I need help with well, I could do any sort of math and science question you ever ask about me, but languages, oh, that's tough for me. So these kind of, um, it starts, I think, disclosure. Another part of disclosure is making sure we're being open and in, in, in developing insight with a person with autism themselves, which has to, who has to know about these challenges and it empowers them to advocate. There's a couple of, uh, I, I love this idea of advocacy because it also uh, uh, dovetails with, um, a strength-based approach, you know, savants that have tremendous skills and some of these. So I, I think in some ways, some of the kids that I've worked with who've been successful have been able to kind of offset stigma 
by showcasing their strengths. Um, that's just a comment, but I, I don't I don't know if you think that's a wise thing to do. And the second part of the question is, um, how often is 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 ASD associated with other psychiatric disorders that might complicate issues? And what do we do about that? Because a lot of parents ask about that. Yeah, I think um, uh, savant abilities is uh, an interesting subject in the world of autism because you know it's it, it sometimes can be a stereotype associated with autism. I've certainly met some um, some people with uh, autism who have extraordinary abilities in certain areas, um, and um, oh, there's also a stereotype around it being maths and science based. And, you know, the reality is I've met as many people with autism who were whizzes when it came to. English and incredibly creative when it comes to stories and everything like that. And they sometimes say, everyone assumes I'm math and science person. I hate math and science. So, you know, we, um, we be careful a little bit with our, with that, with the sense of what our stereotypes might be um, and understanding that each person is different. But I think um, what you're bringing up is important because for some people with autism, they struggle with, um, they may have one academic area where they are remarkable and they have a lot to contribute to the world, probably in that academic area. But we think of college, we think of broad, we think of we're going to give somebody a broad education. That's nice. And that's important. And that's a good goal in college. But it may make it hard for people with autism who um, have a lot to contribute in one area, really struggle in in other areas. So I'd like to see that as a as a direction that you know, allowing people of college who are, who are really good in one area to still be in college you know, that maybe that would create a more co inclusive college experience. Oh, you, the second part of your question, I forgot, Gene. What was the second part again? I, I A lot of parents uh, that I work with have kids with uh, with ASD of one kind or another, and they have associated psychiatric yes. disorders, such yeah, as depression, it's... anxiety. Anxiety is a huge one. But I mean, yes. what do you see as, as being as being uh, other psychiatric issues that 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 should be addressed? Yeah, thank you, Gene. Um, one of the common ones that gets missed is ADHD. And um, sort of in that kind of same area, challenges with executive function, planning and organization. Um, I think as we're understanding, you know, in the same ways that we're understanding that, you know, autism without intellectual disability has exist, existed for a while, we've missed it. We're also learning about ADHD in adults is something that's important that we don't want to miss. It's a really common comorbid issue, or if you want to use that term comorbid or co-occurring issue in autism that uh, that we don't want to miss because it can allow people to be a lot more successful uh, in college. Um, there are some ways in which some of the features of autism itself can sometimes get in the way of being successful in college. For instance, strong interests can lead to deep expertise, but it can also lead to getting distracted from this might be the child that um, that uh, could tell you all the different stages of the Saturn V rocket, but fails physics 101 because they're reading about the Saturn V rocket. Um, you know, so uh, just sort of being aware that, you know, um, we've got to balance practicality with some areas of interest. Um, and then uh, depression. Depression is a really common challenge for a lot of people with autism because they may have the academic abilities all in the world to be super successful in college, but struggle in many areas in their life. And that's, I think that's hard for a lot of uh, autistic people, um, you know, and also to live in a world that's very much designed for a neurotypical person, like the example of a broad college experience is a good example of that, you know, and, um, and struggling with being able to do jobs, but not being able to 
you know, be hired. So um, depression is a common challenge and something to think about. Social anxiety is another one I'd put up there as a common one. Everybody with autism is different in terms of how much social interaction they need. There's a stereotype out there that people with autism don't need much social interaction. Some people really do. Um, but we should also similarly not apply our sense of what um, adequately social is and force somebody to be that same level of social. So for people who want social relationships where that's important to them and they want deep relationships, they can get isolated in college and they can get social anxiety can be a part of that and lead to that isolation um, and then lead to depression. So those are some of the most common, I guess we could say co-occurring mental health issues that I can see being a wrench in the works for college. Well, this is really helpful. I think um, we've covered so much. And and again, I think college is just such a emotional experience for so many kids and families, but really, you know, with this population, this group really, really the challenge of trying to find the right environment as they transition from, you know, a place where they've had a lot of supports can, can be really um, daunting and how to pick a school. And so this is really helpful in terms of giving some guidance. Are there things that we didn't talk about that you think is really important for us to spend a little bit of time on before we end? Just the last thing I would mention is that there are so many ways to do college. We, we think in our mind, you know, college, we think going off, you're, gonna, you're leaving the home, you're packing the bags, you're going off to college, you're staying in the dorms, you're there for four years and you come back. This is not how everybody does college. And some people do college part-time. Some people do college, you know, they start with an associate's degree. Um, and then move to college if that goes well. Some people are working part-time and taking some classes. There are many different ways to do college, and we shouldn't try to shoehorn our sense of, you know, the, the way to do college um, for everybody, because that's not the best way for it. And that can be a really nice way to start the college experience if we're a little uncertain about how it's going to go. We're going to stay at home. We're going to take a couple classes, and we're going to work part-time, and we're going to see how you like it. And that's a really nice place, safe place to start. And then, and then getting a sense of what people like. And you know what? I think I am ready for, you know, staying in the dorms. Let's, let's take that on. Let's start with, I'll have my own room. Then I'll take on a roommate. You can kind of graduate to increasing levels of independence as you go. And, um, and that can, setting somebody up for success can sometimes be starting with that. Maybe I'll just also say one other thought, which is that um, there can sometimes be uh, a thing for parents here where you've got this really remarkable um, child who's academically very capable and cares about doing a good job. And they seem for all the world, like they are going to, the college is going to seem interesting for them and then they struggle. And I think that that can bring up a lot of feelings of, you know, this is harder than I thought it would be considering what an academically uh, capable um, person this is. And so, uh, opening up for the possibility that there may be some grieving, there may be some sadness, there may be some surprise at there being challenges. Um, and uh, and just being open to those those feelings coming up as a parent, because, uh, you know, you can have someone who's academically very capable and still, uh, still struggle in some other areas. This is like so kind of obvious, but we also need to hear it because there, there are so many different ways, especially in this day and age, that we can do college. And it is so important for us to also, you know, manage our expectations and make room and, and be flexible if we have to pivot or change um, along the process. And, and that's and that's OK. So it almost is like, you know, we need to hear it so that we have permission to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. I might add, we, we should probably think of that for 
kids even without ASD. Right. Yeah. A lot, a lot of kids need different kinds of transitions. They need to work maybe for a year or two or take right. a gap year. Or I mean, we need to be more flexible. I think we're overall we're are. This is just my own comment. We're just too geared towards, you know, doing it one way, one right. size fits all. Um. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you back here on the third Thursday of next month. Uh, if you like what you heard, please send us a review. And we hope that our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Jean Bereson. And I'm Khadija Booth Watkins. Thank you so much. Until next time. Uh, Chris, what's something you're looking forward to this week? Oh, I um, I am planning to see the Super Mario Brothers movie with my kids. Uh, Super Mario is big in our house. Um, the kids like it too. And uh, we're all excited to see the movie. Maybe it's you? just me that's excited. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Well, I it was, you know, I, I don't play video games.